we actually have preaching continued tonight. How many were in the adult Sunday school hour this morning? Good. Then you will rejoice because my father stuck on the top of my note, you need 11 minutes to get done from here. <laughs> and he put it right on the top of my note. If you were here in Sunday school, my dad makes notes for himself because he's not overly comfortable teaching in public. I guess I get this from my mom or I get it from the Lord. I don't know, but uh, he doesn't like it. And so he makes himself notes. And one of the notes he made himself was when he got to the third main point, you got 11 minutes to get done from here. And so he decided he would put that on my notes tonight. At the beginning. <laughs> Galatians chapter three is where we are. We'll read verses 24 through 29. We'll pray and jump into the teaching as we go through chapter 3 this evening. Paul, writing to the churches of Galatia, says in verse 24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many, uh, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Father, help us this evening as we turn our attention to this little letter of Galatians, to these churches in a region of the Roman Empire where many different thoughts and many different views were held. But Lord, I pray that we would see Christian liberty as Paul expresses it in these six chapters. Help us tonight again, I pray, as we will look at principled liberty in chapter 3 and then look forward to next week in chapter 4. Bless all that is said and all that is done. Help us, I pray, as we also come to your table together as a body. May we take worthily, may we take easily, knowing that in doing so we look forward to your soon return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we covered two chapters in Galatians. We looked at personal liberty first. And as we looked at personal liberty, we saw that personal liberty was there coupled with the gospel light. In chapter 1, we noted that Paul gave a declaration of the gospel in verses 1 through 5. And then he highlighted, or at least noted, their departure from grace in verses 6 through 12. In chapter number two, we saw that Paul demonstrated or used himself as the demonstration of grace. That was chapter one, verses 13 through 24. And all of chapter two was a defense of grace. Paul went not on the offensive, but rather on the defense of grace. And we're going to see from the personal liberty, there springs a principled liberty. If we, in fact, have Christian liberty, it's not just ours to have for ourselves. It's not just our own truth. It's not just something we believe for ourselves, but rather it's got some principle to it. There's value in it. It's life building and life affirming in Christ Jesus. Well, that's what he's going to do in chapters three and four. Remember, he's arguing, he's fighting against, if you will, Judaizers. He's going to ask a litany of questions at the beginning of chapter three that are wonderfully profound in their rhetorical nature. By the time we're done with them, I put them in your notes, and we'll get through them, through them this evening. By the time we get through those rhetorical questions, there really isn't a leg left for the Judaizers to stand on. 
Yet Paul continues to give more and more principled liberty. If the personal liberty came by the gospel's light, we find here that principled liberty actually is governed by the law itself. And you say, well, wait, we don't need the law anymore. We don't need religion. Right, you don't need religion, but there are still governing principles in our life. There's guidelines we live by. I've had many conversations through the years as a pastor as to what the structures and strictures of our Christian faith are. And the answer is they really haven't deviated much from the law. We're going to talk a little bit about this evening the moral and spiritual law. Certainly much of the ceremonial and civil law is off because that has finished. We are not a particular nation, though we are a spiritual nation in Christ. So the civil laws can be good to live by, but we're not out stoning our rebellious children anymore. Yeah. We're praying for them, as we'll see. So we see this evening that, yes, that law, the law of Moses, is not nullified, even though Paul just finished defending grace in chapter 2. Rather, it is the law that becomes our guiding light in the life that we live in Christ. God's purpose for giving the law is not lost with the arrival of grace, Paul is going to tell us here in chapter number 3. The law of God principles our liberty, while the law of God never goes about persecuting or tormenting our liberty. As I noted last week, liberty is not a license to sin, and that's how so often Christians want to dub it. Hey, I've got liberty, man. Well, it's not an occasion of the flesh, as we'll see as we get deeper into Galatians. It's actually a reason for us to live more holy because we are free. While the sacrifices and the sin offerings are complete in Christ, and that is true, the guiding influence of God's moral and spiritual law still have impact upon our lives today. We find that there are boundaries for us when we start noting things like ceremonial and civil law. We are not bound in an outward confirmation anymore because in our hearts there's an ever-increasing transformation. That's ultimately what Paul's going to drive home in these two chapters. There's an inward law. That's what we read this evening for our text in verses 24 and 25. Because it was our schoolmaster, it's needful and necessary, but it's no longer the guiding influence in our life. It is that relationship, the conforming to the image of Christ that we ought to be engaged in. So this evening, there are two principles of the law that Paul identifies for our new grace-filled lives. First, he notes here in chapter 3 that our liberty comes through the seed of faith. That's the title of the message this evening in particular. Our principled liberty actually is through the seed of faith. It is through that initial truth in the garden. Adam, if you will not eat of the tree, you will live in relationship with me forever. Did Adam believe that up until a point? And then he disbelieved that. And he acted in faith against God. And that sin was the first sin and marked the departure from the eternal or everlasting life that he was given. The second truth that we'll study next Sunday night is in chapter 4, and that is that our principled liberty confirms us as sons of God. Oh, chapter 4 is great. It's rich. It is deep. And we will try to plummet depth, but it's a Sunday night, and it's just one night that we're going to try to cover a chapter, as we will tonight. Here in Galatians chapter 3, Paul begins by saying this in verse number 1, if you'll look there with me. Oh, foolish Galatians. 
Now, how many of us that are older remember back to a time when our parents would say, Oh, Kyle, or oh, insert your name here. What didn't you understand? That's essentially what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Hey, Galatians, he's not using the word for fool of the Old Testament of an open God rejecter. He's using one that was so ignorant in their thinking. How can you be so blind, naive, and ignorant? Galatians, who hath bewitched you, he says in verse number one, that ye should not obey the truth before the eye, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Verse 4, have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you, to you the spirit. By the way, this is him. This is a reference to himself. And worketh miracles among you. Doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What we find is the Apostle Paul begins to set out an attack against the Judaizers. He's going to principle his own liberty so that he could live by and they could as well. The Judaizers are stating that their way was the way of intellect. Their way was the way that pleased God the most, and it was the way in which the Jews should live. And Paul says, you go that way, and you're a fool. You're naive. You're simple. Salvation and sanctification are always to the smallest seed of faith. I often laugh when Jesus uses that, that picture in each of the parables of a grain of a mustard seed. The picture he's saying is you. Your faith is you. It is within you. You don't need to be a great person of faith. You just need to be you acting in faith. The mustard seed of faith. Liberty comes by grace, which Paul addresses first in Galatians 3 and number 1 in your notes. The fact that liberty, principled liberty, is first spiritual. It is spiritual. These are the questions that Paul is asking here. Paul explains quite clearly that Christian liberty is a spiritual matter, not a physical one. No one has ever won their freedom from sin in the physical realm, Paul is arguing. Christ did it all. It is faith in his work that brings freedom. The lie of the Judaizers was, you earned this, therefore you keep this. Paul says, you didn't earn your liberty. It was given to you. This grace, this salvation. Paul sets out a litany of rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions are powerful, by the way. Parents, you ought to learn to use them with your kids. When you ask a rhetorical question, what that means is everybody knows the answer before it's finished. And that's what Paul does in each of these questions. Every single one of them knew the answer as soon as Paul asked it. It was obvious. In fact, many times for rhetorical questions, there doesn't need to be a response given at all. Rather, they are reflected inwardly. Listen to some of these questions in verse number one. I put them in your I put them in your notes. Who bewitched you? We heard this morning on the deceptive thinking that we believe, the lies of our modern culture and our sinful selves. The word means the I the word bewitched means to hypnotize you in the original language. Who has hypnotized you to believing this way? <coughs> Who has? The answer is partly us and partly those that we surround ourselves by. But the point is, it's the company that we keep. It's the words that we listen to. 
Effectively, as I put in your notes, who lied to you and why did you fall for it? That's what Paul's asking. I wonder sometimes in our own culture, in our own churches, many times we live by religious rituals or the things that people have as expectations. We have a litany of things that we must do that we think would make the pastor happy. So we hold to those things because certainly this will make me better in the eyes of the pastor. Can I tell you? That is foolishness. Who has bewitched you? You have Christian liberty, and your principle of liberty is not based upon a list of items that are approved by this church. I've been asked before, Pastor, do we have a dress code? And the answer is yes. What is it? The three L's. Help me. Long, Long loose, and lots of it. That's it. You say, well, that, that's got to be, I mean, I don't know. So, so does that apply to it? And the answer is, that's it. Well, well, surely you've got better standards than that. And the answer is, we all have Christian liberty. Again, not license. We're not trying to dress provocatively. We're not trying to dress immodestly. We're not trying to do things in the wrong way. By the way, notice I haven't even said if that's men or women yet. The idea is long, loose, and lots of it. If you cover up, I'll cover up too. Might be the way to say it. Here's the point. Whatever the list is, whatever I make, whatever man-made pleasing idea I come up with, it would still be a process of bewitching you. But that does not remove the guidepost of morality and how we live. You say, you find all that in verse 1? No, I'm, I'm being a little evangelical here. I'm borrowing a little liberty, if you will. But the point is building in Paul's mind from the first two chapters. In verse number two, here's the rhetorical question. How did you receive the spirit of God's indwelling? This only what I learned of you. Could you imagine if the apostle Paul looked at you and said, hey, Kyle, I just got one question for you. Hey, I just, I just want to know one thing. I mean, immediately afterwards, especially as a kid that was constantly in trouble growing up, I would think, oh, man, I'm in for it now. Hey, Kyle, I just want to know one thing. Why did you do that? What he says here is, how did you receive the spirit of God's indwelling? Receive ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, of course, they knew the answer as soon as he finished asking the question. I imagine the, when they read this letter aloud in each of the churches in Galatia, that those Judaizers who were stirring up strife, they probably went and hid behind the piano somewhere. Because they thought, oh, man, he got it. And the answer is, yeah, it didn't come by the law. We kept the law for a couple thousand or a thousand and a half years and it didn't bring the spirit of God but when Jesus Christ came died and rose again then the spirit of God came after that how did we receive it through Christ's supernatural work his gracious gift of salvation this indeed is the great divide between the Old Testament and the New the law said do grace says done the law said try grace says trust the law says behave grace says believe the law points to the commandments while grace points to Christ. The weakness of the law is in the flesh, or the human vessel. The wonder of grace is found in the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. His indwelling of us is the manifestation that it is by grace we are saved. By our faith. Verse number three, he asked this rhetorical question. It's probably a pretty good one, and most of us have probably been asked this at some point in our life. Are you really this naive? Now, the other way to say it is, are you really that dumb? Did Paul ask it that way? No, he said it much more elegant than that. He said, are ye so foolish? Verse 3. Having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? 
I mean, if this is all by God's grace, why would keeping the law keep you saved? Why would that earn you any status with God? How did you go from supernatural life, effectively, he's asking, by regeneration, to physical life, which is reformation? I, I don't have a problem with transformation, but truthfully, the idea that I'm going to reform myself is nowhere found in this book. Oh, I know there was a group that wrote from the Catholic Church that were called the Reformers, but they were trying to reform Catholic doctrine. They weren't really trying to transform themselves at all. I don't know that we should call ourselves transformers. It seems like a silly thing from the 80s, but it fits. That's what we are. We're transformed by the grace of God. And he asks effectively this question in verse number four, moving on, or verse number three. He says, look, are you so foolish? You began one way, but now you're saying everyone that comes to Christ must come this way. If you began this way, why would it change? It's always by grace. In verse number four, here's the rhetorical question that he asks. He says, if these Judaizers are right, why did we suffer so much? Think of that. If they were right, again, remember the context of the writing and who the audience was, who the author was and who the audience was. Those are important when you read these epistles. Paul is writing to people in Galatia. Paul was stoned to death or nearly to death in Acts chapter number 14, verses 19 through 20 in Lystra, a Galatian city. So give what he's asking here. He said, look, why did I get stoned to death if they're right? Why am I willing to suffer if that's the way? If it's just outward conformity, why am I even trying to have inward transformation? If it's just about keeping the law and making everybody happy on the outside like they did through Israel's history, which brought them no closer to God than when, until Jesus Christ died and rent the veil of the temple. Paul's point is pretty bold here. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas interestingly go back through Galatia to Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, and it is there that they meet Timothy before they receive their Macedonian call. These families that Paul is writing to had suffered loss. They had been afflicted chiefly by Judaism and here by Christian Judaizers who had converted themselves modestly to Christianity or the faith of Christ because they saw there was a following. And so as they infiltrated the church, they brought their heresy with them, their false teaching with them. And Paul asks a very simple question in verse number four. Have ye suffered so many things in vain? Why did you suffer if they're actually right? By the way, there's a lot of Christians that should stop and ask that same question. If you really want to live like the devil and live like the world and live only to please the pleasures of your flesh, why do you even come to church? Yeah. Why do you even read the Bible? Why do you even care about Christian things? And you see, when you answer that question and you face it head on in the mirror and you're serious about it, you will change how you live. Until you face that question, you may continue on with the same struggle that these Galatians were, and you're as foolish as they are. Liberty, friend, is spiritual, Paul is saying. It is not something that comes by obeying the law. Paul effectively asks, if they're right, why did all of us suffer so much? I often want to ask the same questions to the feel-good churches of today. If Christianity is not supposed to change you from worldly living... Why did our forefathers in the faith suffer so much? I mean, why didn't they just conform? Yeah. 
Christians in other nations suffering so much? You can go to Muslim nations or communist nations, countries that are closed to the gospel or cold to the gospel, and you will find Christians being persecuted. It's a dirty little secret that the world today doesn't want to talk openly about. But Christian persecution the world over, those that truly believe this book are being persecuted in greater quantity of numbers today than at almost any point in human history. And we don't hear anything about it. Why are they suffering so much for us to live passionate Christian lives? To not live spirit-filled? Paul's point to the waffling Jews, or Jewish believers, I should say, in the region of Galatia is why is everyone suffering if we just need to live the way that would take away our suffering? And the answer is we're suffering because the way of grace, the way of true liberty, principled liberty, is in fact right. The final rhetorical question he answers in verse 5, and that is this. How did I, Paul, do the miracles I did? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? I mean, there was some supernatural things that happened often again in the Old Testament. But usually miracles were a sign of a change in a dispensation or a change in the way of God's stewardship with mankind. And we find the Apostle Paul asking, hey, look, did I do the miracles by quoting to you the 23rd Psalm? Did I do the miracles by rereading to you the Ten Commandments or the civil commandments that God gave in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and repeated in Deuteronomy? Did I do the miracles by reciting and living by those? And the answer is no. Paul did no miracles when he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. When he was in Gamaliel's rabbinical school, he did none of those miracles. He said, how did I do these miracles? How did I perform the signs and the wonders? How was it done in your midst? And the answer is, by God's grace, not by my power. The early sign gift for miracles only done by the Spirit of God to confirm the message of salvation. They could be explained only in the terms of God working supernaturally. The Judaizers had no grounds on this one, and Paul knew it. Had anything, he's asking, supernatural ever come about by getting circumcised? No. Nothing. It just identifies that family and that child, that male child, with Yahweh, with God, who they wanted to follow. Had observing the Sabbath ever brought someone back from the dead? Nope. Had abstaining from certain kind of foods ever done any miraculous act? And again, the answer to all of these is, of course, no. What Paul's point in these first five verses, which is important for us to understand this evening... Our liberty is principled by the fact that liberty comes in a spiritual way, not in a physical way. If I were reading this passage in a communist country, if I were reading it in a Muslim nation, if I were reading it in a place where I did not have the physical liberties or freedoms that we might have in America, I could still rightly apply all five of these verses to my life. Why? Because principled liberty first is purity. It has nothing to do with the law. It has nothing to do with following rules. It has everything to do with being one with God, in relationship with God. And when you are, he indwells you immediately and fills you as you empty yourself of sin in your own selfishness. So liberty is spiritual, number one, which makes it a matter of principle. Next, Paul says that principled liberty is scriptural. In verses 6 through 14 here of chapter 3, we find the scriptural proof of it. Paul's going to bring in Father Abraham. And yes, every time I say that, I want to sing the song. He had many sons. You were one of them, and 
I am one of them, and so are you. That's what the Bible says. We read that tonight. We are all Abraham's seed. And so we could sing that song if we wanted to and start waving one hand, and then another hand, and another leg. And you say, you almost sung the song, Pastor. I know, but I'll stop there. The point is, there is a scriptural sense of our liberty, and that scriptural sense is where we build the principle in. It's spiritual, so it comes from God, but it is also scriptural. The promises made to Abraham were graciously given by God and faithfully received by Abraham. This scriptural principle never goes away, even when the law comes into existence. Moses, through whom the law was given, records Abraham's personal faith before there was a chosen people of Israel at all. The faith that Abraham, Abraham had was principled upon God keeping his word, and delivering upon every promise he ever made. That's what Abraham trusted in. By the way, that's what I trust in. That's what you trust in. How do you know you're going to heaven? Sunday night, you're allowed to answer. How do you know you're going to heaven? Because I asked Jesus to save me. Good. How do you know you're going to heaven? Holler it out. What did you say, Bob? Well, from there, from a pastor for 27 years, I believe him. And he's right. God said it. That settles it. I'm trusting in the promises of God no differently than Abraham trusted in the promises of God. This is the scriptural truth that we need to understand. Principled liberty is not based upon what we feel, what we think, or what we've been taught. It's based upon what God said. It's scriptural. His word. It is in this vein that Paul takes us back to Abraham. Scripture's order shows us the progressive revelation of the omniscient mind of God. His eternal plan was to have beings made in his image who would of their free will trust him and enter into a relationship or maintain a relationship with him. That is the point of the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. The first scriptural principle that we find Paul addressing is in verses 6 through 9, and that is through the invocation of faith or the bringing in or the ushering in of faith. Look at verse number 6. The Bible says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye, therefore, that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham, it's the invocation of faith, the scriptural basis for you to have freedom, liberty in Christ is by your faith, through your faith, we might say. Blessings always follow faith in the word of God. When we trust, believe in God's revelation, he then will always respond with grace, with mercy, with love, and with kindness. Take your Bibles and turn over with me. Hold your finger here. We'll be back to Genesis chapter number 15. We're going to look at a couple passages. We'll put some of them on the screen, but I really would like you to go and follow along. Edward, a couple, maybe a year ago now, preached a wonderful message on a Wednesday night, bringing attention to the importance of Genesis chapter 15, in particular, in its application to or its realization of saving faith. I want to walk us through this and see what Paul is saying here about Father Abraham and the faith of Abraham. In verses 1 through 3 in Genesis 15, we read these words. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham, Abram excuse me, in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. 
I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. The point that Abram's making to God, which God already knew, but is that this man has born a child, and since he's my servant, by the Old Testament law, but also by Old Testament custom, by the code of Hammurabi in that region, this child was heir to all of Abram's if no other child was born. So what he's asking God effectively is, are you going to keep your promise? Are you going to keep your word? Now, that's a dangerous question sometimes to ask God. Because God's never failed one time of his good promises, Peter tells us. Skip down to verse number six. There's an unfolding of the truth, a conversation between God and Abram that comes out in this passage. God, in verse four, speaks back to him about the heir that would come. Verse six says he believed in the Lord and he counted it unto him for righteousness. Now, that looks very similar to a verse we just read. Paul is quoting this passage. He's noting this passage of Scripture, this reality in the life of Abram. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. What land, by the way, is God giving to him? The promised land. By the way, you and I in the Christian life are to live at liberty in the promised land. The victorious Christian life is lived in our own promised land. I think the church next door just started booming. <laughs> Verse number 8 He said Lord God whereby shall I know That I shall inherit it God give me a sign give me something Give me hope I believe you But I want to believe you more Is what he's saying here And he said unto him take me a heifer of three years old And a she goat of three years old And a sheep excuse me and a ram of three years old And a turtle dove and a young pigeon Now let me pause right here If you were to go forward to the book of Leviticus all of these things were acceptable offerings to God. What God is saying to Abram is, take all of them and offer all of them. In other words, in every possible capacity that's going to be introduced in the law that Moses, years from now, is going to write. Probably 500 years later, 430 at least years after this, he's going to write it. We're going to find all of these are acceptable items to be sacrificed. In other words, he is schoolmastering the law, which schoolmasters our faith. Verse 10, and he took unto him all of these, that's Abram, took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst. In other words, he cut them right down the middle. He separated them as they were supposed to do in offering them back to God. And laid each piece one against the other, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, by the way, there's a great picture and a great lesson. I don't know if you're going to do it in your allegories messages on Wednesday night. But there's a great truth, if you go through the Bible, of all the fowls of Scripture. There's only one that is divine, and that is the dove. But all of the fowls of Scripture, here the Bible says the fowls, the carrion birds, came down upon the carcasses. They were ready to rob of the promise. They were willing to steal it. But notice who had to have the faith to do the work. He drove them off. It's Abram who drives off. It's not God that says, boom, boom, lightning bolt, lightning bolt, I'll keep you safe. You and I have to guard our own faith and trust in God. And Abram does that in verse number 11. Now, skip down to verse 17. What we're skipping over is not immaterial. It's just not pertinent for tonight. It is a foreshadowing and a dream of what will happen when Israel, or excuse me, the children of Israel, the seed of Abraham, end up in captivity in Egypt. And 430 years later, God says, 
they will come out to the day, and they do. Verse 17, we pick up the lesson, and that is this. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, now here is Abram guarding and protecting these items that he set out as a sign before God of his own faith. And he, in that moment, is watching that area. I would believe it's a trench. And in that trench where these animals were laid as a sacrifice to God, it says, Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Now, that's a wonderful truth, but it's too deep for us to dive into tonight. I'll simply say this. This is a picture of God the Father and God the Son. The refining fire of the Father is that burning furnace of his judgment. And the bright light is the gospel light of Jesus Christ. Now, Abraham had no idea of that. Moses, in writing this in the law, had no idea of that. But the truth is, this is what it is. This is what God is telling us. In verse number 18, in the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, this land of promise, the liberty and the place of victory. From the river of Egypt and the great river, the river Euphrates. We can go on and read about all them ites that he had victory over as well. But the point is, in Paul's writing, if you go back to Galatians chapter number 3, you will find in that passage, Paul is referencing this very instance in the life of Abram. So do we find the invocation of faith in verses 10 and following, we find the intellectual fallacy. I told you to hold your place there, and I didn't. Forgive me. Verse number 10, we pick up our reading. The Bible says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, if you're not perfect in them, you're not perfect in any of them. Verse 11, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident. For the just shall live by what? Verse number 11, faith, 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 like all of you said. The just shall live by faith. I mean, how many times have we quoted that? He says that same past, same truth in the book of Romans. We find here a careful examination, pardon me, a careful examination of Old Testament scriptures teaches us that no man is justified by the law. Every Old Testament high priest and likely every Levite knew this. Israelites certainly knew this. A calf, a lamb, a pair of turtle doves, those could not truly save you. For Abram, they could not guarantee a promise. They were just what God required. God was the one that would keep his promise. It was by his grace. And by the way, a calf, a lamb, a pair of turtle doves, any other sacrifice would not satisfy the eternal justice of God. They would only temporarily reprieve you. From the penalty of sin. That's why he says <clears throat> in verse number 12 this, and the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them. What is the them? The law. If you will do the law, you shall live in them. He's not saying you're saved if you keep them. He's saying if you keep all of them and you're perfect in it, you're a perfect man. But there's never been a perfect man. So long as you keep the law and do those things, you're in good shape. Thanks, Pastor. I appreciate it. Apparently, I talked too much at lunch. We had a great lunch today. <clears throat> Thirty-six recipes. What is? How many recipes do we have? <laughs> Thirty-one recipes, right? I get them mixed up with Baskin Robbins all the time. <clears throat> so we find in verses 
10 through 12, there is a fallacy. What is the fallacy? I can keep all the law. You're intellectually foolish if you think that. Your thinking is wrong. And Paul gives in verses 13 and 14 an illuminating fact. Here's what he says. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That is, by the way, written in the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through what? Faith. There's the illuminating fact. Christ and Christ alone is our atonement. <clears throat> the whole of the Old Testament was driving us towards a first seed, then a sacrifice. And Christ is both. He is the seed and he is the sacrifice. Principle of liberty is spiritual, it is scriptural, and then third, Paul deals with in verse number 15 it is sensible. It is sensible. He says in verse number 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul. That's the passage in Genesis 15 that we just read. This is the direct reference to it. This is why Abraham, and not the law of Moses, is the foundation of our liberty. It is where grace is found. It, we are saved by grace through faith. Cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. He goes on in verse 19, Wherefore then serveth the law? What purpose is the law then? Paul's going to ask you a good question here. It was added because of transgression, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. After that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. Here's what we find in the sensible approach to liberty, and I must hasten along. First, Paul says this is just human logic here at the beginning of verse number 15, but God's Holy Spirit approves Paul's human logic, so it means it is inspired. Grace and liberty, Paul says, just make sense. They are part of God's sensible eternal provision. In verses 15 through 18, notice and write in your notes there, the law saved no man. That's what Paul is saying. It did nothing for anyone. Now, we sound like we're beating up the law. We're going to next week see the guiding light that it is, the governing law that we have. But Paul emphatically says the law saved no man. He said Abraham predated the law by 430 years. Was he saved? I mean, he believed in God. Was, was he in heaven? 
Can you imagine a Jew, a Judaizer in the church saying, no, I don't think Abraham's in heaven. Good luck. You're not going to get too many people of the Jewish descent to believe you. What Paul concludes then is that liberty cannot violate the law, for Abraham was saved by grace through faith. But, but, but what was the object of his faith? God's promises. Did he know Jesus Christ as his Savior? Well, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that when Jesus led captivity captive, he put his faith in Jesus that day, in that moment. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that, and I love how Paul does it. He does it literally as an aside. We might better say here that God's revelation of himself to mankind is what they put their faith in. The law has never provided salvation, but faith and faithful observance to the law was the means or the operation of salvation for them in the Old Testament. Paul is not throwing off all of the Old Testament. What he's saying is it's no longer in effect because grace has come, and you're at liberty. To Abraham, he promised a seed. That seed, <clears throat> excuse me, was Christ. To Adam, he promised a seed that would crush the serpent's head. That seed was Christ. So we find that the law and those who had faith before it proved to us that it never has saved any man. So in verses 19 through 23, we find the second sensible truth that Paul gives to us. He says the law serves God's plan. Well, why do we have it then? He said because it was important. Well, if it doesn't save us, why is it important? Because it's going to guide how you're supposed to live. It doesn't give you life, but it guides how you're supposed to live. That's what Paul says in verses 19 through 23. Paul here does not ask another rhetorical question. He asks instead a reflective question. Why did God give the law? The answer is so that we might see his standard. We might see his mind. We might see who he is. We might see how far short we fall of him. It says in verse 19, it was added mainly because of transgression, but it was added so that we might understand what our transgressions look like. Maybe with a little bit more clarity, as we understand the law better, we might understand the fullness of our own transgressions. As we heard this morning, one of the true lies of the devil is for you to believe your sin isn't that bad. By the way, that's true if you've never been saved, it will damn you to hell. It's true after you're saved because it will doom you to not being in fellowship with him. Both are troublesome. And so the law did serve God's plan. It taught us we are all under sin, he notes. In verses 24 and 25, we find the third point, and that is this. The law schools everyone. The law saved no man. The law served God's plan. But ultimately, the law schools every man. Paul's conclusion is the... <clears throat> is that the law's purpose was to instruct us of our wrongdoings so that we might appreciate the righteousness that comes in Christ. Liberty, therefore, cannot be exercised for or in our flesh, for the law constantly reminds us that our personal sin and failure separate us from fellowship with God. Look over to chapter 10 of the book of Romans. Romans 10 and verse 3 says this, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Verse number four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that what? Believe it. Principled liberty is spiritual, Paul argues. 
Principled liberty is scriptural. It is sensible. But finally, Paul opens for us the fact that we have principled liberty as sons. Sons of whom? Sons of God. And we'll look at that in great detail next week. In verse number 26, the Bible says we have liberty through relationship. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. If that verse is not underlined in your Bible, it ought to be. How do I know I'm a child of God? Well, John 1 tells us that we are. We have the power to become the sons of God as we believe on his name. But here Paul echoes that same thought. Ye are all the children of God. How? By faith in Christ Jesus. The second thing that we note in clothing is the liberty that we have in reality. The liberty that we have in reality. The final three verses of this chapter teaches these three things quickly as we close. And that is this. There is the liberty that we have, and it is real, friend, but it begins in Christ, verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In other words, we have been immersed in him. That's called the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We are literally and totally covered by him. We don't have some of Christ's imparted righteousness. What Paul is saying is we have been completely immersed into him. And as we've been immersed in him, his robes of righteousness cover us. How horrible it is to keep saying that. You have the liberty to live a life free from sin. Why don't you exercise that liberty? Verse 28, it's not just in Christ, it's in communion. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's no reason for division or schism. There's neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. God does not play favorites. And by the way, neither should we. We should have communion as a community in Christ. Verse 29, we find the final thought, and that is in continuity. Or, excuse me, in continuity. Can't read my own writing. I am getting old. Verse 29, if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What Paul is arguing here is, look, this sonship and the reality of the sonship is just a continuity from the Old Testament. It is something that God has always desired. He chose Israel to be his chosen people, but they rejected him. And so they became, Paul would tell the Romans, a branch that was cut off. They refused and rejected the reality of that relationship, and they no longer had the liberty to come into the presence of Almighty God. But we, those who come by faith in the grace of God, we can access him. There is a continuity to it. If ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In closing, principled liberty is governed by God's law, Paul is arguing here. We don't throw it out. We don't get rid of it. Now, I don't believe in our church any of us struggle with this, but I do know that we have a generation of believers that don't understand the important role that the law is still supposed to play. Because anytime they hear the law preach, they think, oh, that's a rules and regulations, Pastor. And the answer is, God's a God of order. And what Paul is saying to the Galatians is, look, don't be bewitched, don't be hypnotized by their Judaism. But also, don't just throw out the law. It's a squash. It's important for us to have. Liberty is guaranteed by grace through the seed of faith, Paul has argued. 
It is a spiritual transaction that is both scriptural and sensible in this chapter. And the ultimate result is that you and I become sons of God. What a great liberty to have to be called a child of God. Amen. Next week in chapter 4, we will see what principled liberty as the sons of God fully entails. There is something to, be a son, to uh, being a son of God and no longer being the son of Adam. We must be a different people, he told us. Tonight we're going to pray and then we're going to move into communion.